interacts with people, I hear questions, sometimes out of anger, sometimes out of broken hearts. Well, if the God you talk about is so wonderful, why does he allow fill in the blank? Why does he allow pain, suffering? Why did he allow my godly mother to suffer before she died? Why does he allow children to starve? Why does he allow evil to go forth? And the why questions are not wrong questions for the God we preach about being a sovereign God. They're good and right questions. But oftentimes they come from a wrong foundation. You see, everything has its foundation in the gospel, whether one knows it or not. Amen? Everything does. Everything that we look at in the world has its foundation of whether we understand correctly who God is, who we are as men and women, what sin is, what sin has wrought in our lives and in the world, and what the solution is. Everything can boil down to that. It boils down to that in our lives as those who are professing Christ. It boils down to that in those who don't know God at all. The true understanding of those brings the world into true focus. And oftentimes, people are asking questions because they want things from God. They they may not know any better, but they want things. They want happiness. They want prosperity. They want peace. They want want lack of sickness. They're, they're, They're not wrong things to want, but they're wanting it from the God that we're talking to them about because we say this God is all powerful. And if we're not careful, we may dismiss the requirement of receiving from God. Because you see, when one comes face to face with God, there's only, for the first time, there's only one response, and that's not gimme, gimme, it is bow. It's not, what can you do for me? How how can you benefit my life if I put you on the shelf with all my other household gods? But it's bowing before him in worship. It is bowing before him in submission. That is step number one before anything else comes into focus at all. And that is the case for someone who doesn't know Christ. It's also the case for us who do know Christ. Because oftentimes we're pleading with God to do one thing when we're not doing the other. We're pleading with him to accomplish one thing when we haven't done this other thing that has a great effect on what we're asking him to accomplish. He's revealed himself to us and how we are to respond to him in obedience. And we ignore that and say, I don't want to do that, but I do want you to do this. That is in God's mind for the people of Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 15. That's what he's conveying to them. We're progressing through these oracles to the nations, and remember that these oracles are to, according to the written word inspired by God, to certain nations, but they are given in earshot of Judah, the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem, those to whom Isaiah is ministering to. So they're not untrue for the nation, and maybe these words are being given to the nations, but they're on behalf of Judah, God's people, and they're giving messages to them. So we have traversed through a couple of these oracles so far, the oracle to Babylon, and we've seen that be to the the specific nation of Babylon, but also expanded very quickly to the whole world. And we've also seen an oracle against or concerning Philistia. And in that oracle, we were shown the promises of the throne of David and the working out of the messianic hope for God's people. And this oracle that we come to, the third in our series concerning Moab, will also have right in the center of it, at the crux, 
an understanding of the messianic promise. Alec Motier is a, is a wonderful commentator on Isaiah, and he says this. The thematic development of the oracles continues, talking about the oracle concerning Moab. The Babylon oracle revealed that world history, even in its most threatening and climactic forms, is so organized that the people of God are cared for. The Philistia oracle confirms this by insisting that the Davidic promises would be kept and the Moab oracle corrects any impression that the hope expressed in the Davidic promises is exclusivist. Isaiah now says that the promises which will be fulfilled for David in Zion are for all who will take refuge there. So there is a progression to these oracles, and I think Motir sees it well for us to help us see what's happening. So this is concerning Moab for the ears of the people of Judah to teach them about God and what he's up to in the world, for our ears and hearts to apply what God is doing and how he's up to, what he's up to in the world because God never changes. So it's beneficial for us as well. So this morning, we even start out just with a question for you. How submitted to you are you to the Lordship of Christ? How submitted are you to the Lordship of Christ? Not here, but here. Not in your head only, in your intellect, but in your heart, with your feet, with your hands, with your speech, with your mouth, with your actions, with your thoughts. Because too often we come to the Lord accepting the benefits of salvation without accepting the benefits of sanctification. So we accept his benefits, our inheritance, our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, eternity with Christ, but we neglect our sanctification by repenting of sin and trusting in him in the midst of it. We're asking for the blessing, but we're not submitting to the lordship of Christ. So that's the question we want to strengthen the answer to this morning through the oracle concerning Moab. I've gone back and forth whether to read the whole passage together or do it in sections, but I think we need to hear it. So let's stand as I read this, and you can make fun of me as I struggle through all kinds of names that are hard to pronounce. And this goes from 15.1 to 16.14, and I think it's important for us to hear it, how it rolls, how it rolls toward us. And I want you to be listening for changes in speaker and changes of emotion as this text goes on, because that will be the key to understanding it. Isaiah 15. An oracle concerning Moab, because R of Moab, Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moash is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple and to Dibon, to the high places to weep over Nebo, over Mediba. Moab wails. On every head is baldness. Every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth. On the housetops and in the squares, everyone wails and melts in tears. Hezbon and Eliliah cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud, and his soul trembles. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath Shelishayim. For at the ascent of Luith, they go up weeping. On the road to Haronaim, they raise up a cry of destruction. 
The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches Eglaim. Her wailing reaches to Beer Elim. For the waters of Dibon are full of blood. For I will bring upon Dibon even more. A lion for those of Moab who escape. For the remnant of the land. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. From Selah by way of the desert. To the, mount, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcast, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcast of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more, and destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence, and his idle boasting. He is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kirharaseth, for the fields of Hezbon languish, And the vine of Sigma, the Lord of the nations, have struck down its branches, which reach to Jazir and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazir. For the vine of Sigma, I drench you with my tears, O Hezbon and Eliliah. For over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased. And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in the vineyards, no songs are sung. No cheers are raised. No treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore, my inner parts mourn like a lyre for Moab. And my inmost self for Kir Hariset. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. This is the word that Yahweh spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now Yahweh has spoken saying, in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude and those who remain will be very few and feeble. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So in these verses, we witness six scenes in God's oracle concerning Moab. Six scenes in God's oracle concerning Moab. Was this a difficult passage for you to work through this week? 
Because if it wasn't for you, then you need to just come on up and take over because it was a difficult passage. But the Lord is faithful. He has a purpose. His word is there for us to understand. His spirit is there helping us and guiding us. So with his help continuing this morning, as we always ask, we'll look at this passage and understand what God is doing and how he's revealing himself and what we see about his character. So the first scene, Moab grieves for them. Moab grieves for themselves. Look at right at verse 15, verse 1. An oracle concerning Moab. And then in the rest of that verse, we have these two cities, Ar and Kir, both of Moab. And we're told that they are laid waste at night and Moab is undone. So Ar being in the north, Kir probably being Kir Haseth in the very south or Kir, another town in the middle. We're just going to have to concede that some of these towns that are named, we don't know where they are. Some we do. Some commentators are pretty sure that they know where it is until you read the next commentator who's pretty sure it's somewhere else or the next commentator who's pretty sure that we don't know where it is. Some of them are clear, but what is clear is there is a pattern going on to instruct us of the story that's moving forth. So as we see these nations, we see this beginning right here in verse 1, beginning with a city in the north and the city at least in the middle, if not in the very south, bringing the sweeping judgment of God upon the nation of Moab. And as we watch the cities progress, what we will see is the people, Assyria is still in mind. Remember, Assyria is the superpower now through Isaiah in the 8th century BC. Assyria is coming against Moab, and they are moving from the north to the south because Assyria is in the north and to the northeast, and they're moving south, and the people of Moab are retreating from north to south. Their wailing is heard. Even as they retreat to the south, their wailing is heard all the way in the north. So some of these markers are showing us the movement of the Moab people, the movement of the refugees, and the movement of the army that is um, trying to overtake them. That's the main theme that we're seeing in these first nine verses. So we don't want to lose track of that while we try to figure out the answers to some questions that I don't have an answer to. That's what the Lord is showing us in the movement of this. So Moab, Moab has an interesting history with God's people. If you remember your biblical history where Moab and where the Moabites and the Ammonites come from. It comes from that, that very sad and despicable night where there was, there was sin in the camp. And the daughters went to the father and the, the, the Lot's daughters went to him. They were afraid they were going to remain childless and not have heirs. So they went to their father and they, they laid with him and they had two sons. The son of the older, Moab. So right from the beginning of Scripture, we're showed that there is a connection between God's people and the Moabites. And we even see that when the, the, the Israelites are told to go into the land, they're told not to take certain land that belonged to the Moabites because they're, they're part of this, this people that have a relationship with God's people. And in fact, when the Moabites did not receive them well as they came into the land, God punished them for not receiving them because the Israelites were told to leave them alone, and yet they didn't leave the Israelites alone. We know it in other places in Scripture that Balak, uh, Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel. So Israel's trying to do what God says throughout the history, but the Moabites are pushing back. They're constantly pegging back at God's people. In Judges 3, Eglon, the king of Moab, held Israel under bondage for 18 years. 
Moses is told not to attack the Moabites, what we just talked about, because they were family and God had given uh, the land, the city, the land of Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. In Deuteronomy 23, the Moabites or, and the Ammonites, Ammonites are told that none of them shall enter into the congregation of the Lord for 10 generations and forever because of those two events, because of Balak hiring Balaam to, to curse Israel and because of the Moabites not welcoming and receiving and giving drink to God's people as they entered the land. But we know that there was still grace even involved in that prohibition because David ends up being the great-grandson of a Moabitess, Ruth. Ruth who comes and, and flees and into uh, uh, Israel and marries Elimelech and, and, and they, they have a, a child and that child has a child and that child has a child and David comes from that line. So the preservation of the line of David so prominent in Isaiah, even has ties to Ruth the Moabitess. There's a few more things that we can look at that we'll probably bring up a little later, but let's just let that be our background <clears throat> to Moab. Much we could say about Moab, but we'll leave it at that. <clears throat> so if you look back at your text, in verse 2, we have this picture of the Moabites going up to their places of worship, their God was Chemosh, and they would go to their place of worship, and they're mourning. You see these signs of mourning in verse 2. There's baldness on the heads, and the beards are shorn, and they're wearing sackcloth, and, and they're, they're crying tears. They're melting with tears. The word has to do with going or falling down weeping. It's the, it's the same word that's used in the Proverbs or in the Psalms in Psalm 133 about oil, the oil of joy flowing down on Aaron's beard. That's the word that's used, but it's in the opposite way. It's used of mourning, of tears flowing so much that they're falling down with weeping. The cities of, that are mentioned in verse 4, um, the, some of these cities are built by the Israelites. Some of these cities, like, like um, Eliela, they're, they're built, Eliela was built by Reuben because Moab, I didn't tell you Moab geographically, if you're not a map person and you haven't looked at this, if you picture the Dead Sea and on the east or the west side of the Dead Sea is, is Judah, on the other side, on the east side of the Dead Sea, that's where you have Moab. Where the where the the tribes of of um, where, where the tribes of Gad on the other side of Moab, uh, north of Moab, it was their land given originally, and then Moab pushed north and north and north into the tribal territories. So now they occupy this land on the southern half of the Dead Sea on the western side. So these these a lot of these cities were built by Reuben and by Gad when the tribes allotments of the lands that were given. So in verse 4, we have these cities um, in the north, the cities that are in the north. Their voices heard as far as Jahaz, their armed men of Moab cry aloud, his soul trembles. So the, the army that's coming from the north even has the soldiers trembling, back down, weeping, trying to cry out to their gods for help and for security, and it's not coming. Verse 5 talks about the cries that are out from Moab. And, and the fugitives flee to Zoar. Zoar is in the very south. So in the midst of this, you have, you have these people who are fugitives that are trying to get away. The men, the women, and the children who are trying to get away, maybe separate. And, and they're separate from the larger groups of people trying to take refuge. And the army still progresses. 
They even get to, to one place where it rises up and they're at the bottom of that ascent and they feel trapped and they're, they're stuck there and they're weeping at the bottom of that. They're raising a cry of destruction in verse 5. There's desolation all around. Pictures of the, of the land again. The greenery is no more. Abundance they have gained and what they have laid up. So it continues on with this description. But if we stop right in verse 4, we have the picture of the Moabites. In verse 5, things change, don't they? In verse 5, things change. The, the tone changes. The speaker changes. Just look at verse 5 where it starts, My heart cries out for Moab. What's happening there? Is this Isaiah? Is this Yahweh? And if it's Isaiah speaking, who is Isaiah speaking for? He speaks for God. So this is God revealing his heart. So not only Moab grieving for themselves, but Yahweh also grieving now look at the compassion that we're seeing in our God here. Our God, as this traverses through our passage, we're going to see that our God is responsible for this. He, he is the one that's doing this, and yet he is grieving over the sinfulness of Moab. So in verse 5, we read these words, My heart cries out for Moab, cries out for her fugitives, cries out for those who are stuck, for those who are weeping. We see this word, for, which some translations leave out a lot. ESV leaves it out a couple of times. Um, I think the NIV might leave it out a lot. But there are connectors here with a little Hebrew word that can be translated for. We see that same word in the ESV translated because in verse 1. Some of your versions may say because are, because here, or maybe certainly that, that kind of certainty that this has happened. We see the same thing connected here in verse 5. For the ascent. For should be there on the road. For the waters of Nimrim. For the grasses withered. Then verse 7, therefore. Then verse 8, for. And then in verse 9, for, for, for. Do you see all the connections here? God is speaking. He is, he is mourning over the Moabites. Why? That's where these connectors are important. He's mourning over their fugitives. He's mourning the fact over that they're wailing. He's mourning that they're stuck at certain places and don't know what to do. There's fear in the army. He's mourning over the grass withering and the vegetation falls and the, and the greenery being no more. He's mourning over the abundance that they had gained now as they're trying to, you can picture all the fugitives trying to gather up their most prized possessions and take it with them. That's what's being pictured in verse 7. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brooks of the willows, probably all the way in the bottom, the, 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 the brook, brook and river that runs on the southern border of Moab. <clears throat> so the Lord is mourning over all of this. We have a compassionate God, do we not? We have a God who does what's right and just and who also mourns over the sin of people. They bring it on themselves and he is perfect and right and just, and he acts in the way that his character demands. And he also shows us what it means to grieve over the sin of others, over our own sin. But look at verse 9. For the waters of Dibon, maybe your version says Dimon, different, there's, there's a, there are... Um, Different manuscripts that have different names there. It may be a play on the Hebrew word for blood. There may be a play on words here that's happening. It's not, it doesn't matter which one it is. They're, they're referring to the same event. For the waters of Debon are full of blood. This, this draws to line 
to mind 2 Kings chapter 2, which is prominent in here for 120 years before where the Moabites, once one um, Israelite king dies, they rise up against it before the new king takes power and they looked out over the armies and the sea and they saw the sea as if it was blood. The sun shined on the sea as if it was blood and that gave them great fear. And they didn't know what to do after that. So it's even bringing to mind those kinds of images for the history of the Moabites. And God says, for the waters of Dibon are full of blood. For I will, I will bring, I will bring upon Dibon even more. A lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. If you think you've escaped my grasp, if you think you can escape my judgment... Even your remnant I will send a lion after. Is this a real lion or is this another army that's common to, to use animal terms to describe armies? I'm not sure what it is, but we know the meaning, right? You cannot escape. Even if your remnant thinks that you've gotten away, this is me. This is Yahweh. Now, some would say this is Isaiah speaking, but I think verse 9 speaks against that. Isaiah is not saying this. God is saying this. Their judgment is complete. But then our scene changes. Our scene changes even yet again. In beginning of verse 1 of chapter 16, we've had Moab grieving for themselves and Yahweh grieving for Moab. Now we have Moab seeking relief from Judah. Remember, they're heading south. They're heading south, which would put them at the bottom of the Dead Sea, and right down in that area is where Judah would begin. They were coming into the land of Judah. So here in verse 16, send the lamb to the ruler of the land. Send the lamb to the ruler of the lamb. Does that sound like Yahweh telling the people, your destruction is going to be complete, not even the remnant is going to get away. Now send a lamb. Maybe it'll change. This is the people of Moab. One commentator says it's like sitting in the war room with all the generals and saying, we need to change course here. And this is how they're formulating the plan. They're coming to the southern part of the kingdom. They're coming into the, to the, from the um, eastern side of Judah going into there. So we need to send a lamb there. And why would that be important? Because in that same chapter, in 2 Kings chapter 3, we learn the story of Misha, a Moabite king, who at that time, the Moabites were a vassal of Israel. And every year, Misha, the king, would have to send a thousand lambs and the the, um, wool from a thousand rams to the king of Israel. That's what he had to do every single year. So this would have brought, this is where the generals would be. This is where the leaders would be. It used to work. We used to get protection from them when we'd send a lamb. So is this only one lamb or is this collectively a bunch of lambs? It doesn't matter. The text says one lamb, and even if we're to think that it's good, they're going to give a thousand lambs, which they probably don't have because they're currently under a great amount of judgment. Maybe a lamb is all they have. And so this is their decision. This is what they decide to do, the leaders of Moab, as they seek refuge from Judah. Look at your text in chapter 16. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. I take that as Israel, the king of Israel, from Selah, by the way of the desert. A bunch of trees have been killed about what this Selah is. Is it Petra? Because it means rock. Is it Petra in in the far south in Edom? That doesn't make a lot of sense, but it seems to be what it says. Or should it just be translated rock? It, It doesn't matter. This is the place they're going to get their lamb. The place they're going to get the lamb, and they're going to take it by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. That we know. Amen? 
They're heading to Jerusalem. They're heading to the king. The Hebrew here begins to get very, uh, one writer says it gets panting and breathless and shows the panic of the leaders. It gets marked. It gets contracted. It's, it's, it's almost like, a, can't, can't, get, can't get their words out. That's the way he interpreted the way the Hebrew was written. Like fleeing birds, verse 2, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. So the fords of the Arnon, the Arnon's right in the middle of, the, of Moab, and they're stuck there. There was a ravine that had to be crossed. It's difficult to get across. And so what is their plea? Their plea to, to Judah is, give counsel, grant justice. Maybe your version says, make a decision. Make your shade like night. At the height of noon, shelter the outcast. Do not reveal the fugitive. Come to our aid. Don't show where we are. Don't help our enemies. Don't reveal where they're hiding out. You come. You come to us and give us counsel how we get out of this. You come and grant us justice because we're being treated unjustly. You give us your shade like night at the height of the moon. Verse 4, let the outcast of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. Let us come into your land and you give us protection. Now, what kind of protection do they want? They want physical protection. They want protection, that protection from the army, protection for their people, especially for their vulnerable ones. I mean, they're not asking for un unrighteous things, right? They're asking for protection. They're asking for, for shelter within the country. Take us in because we are at our wit's end. But all they're asking for is physical security. Now, this is where God steps in. The second half of verse 4, this is where Yahweh offers true relief. They're asking for physical security, but Yahweh steps in in the middle of verse 4. Look at how it changes. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land... You see God setting up, when I bring an end to this, I'm in charge of this, and when I bring an end to this, look at verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, in chesed, in covenant faithfulness. And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So this is what they're asking for, right? They're asking for them to make a righteous decision. They're asking for them to cover them up and give them safety. And God steps in and says, when I relieve the battle, when I lift the Assyrians away, and he will do that, then there will be a throne established and it will be a throne of covenant faithfulness. It will be God's covenant faithfulness. And where do we know that term? We know that term because that's, the, that's what God has entered into with his people. So in the oracle concerning Philistia in the last chapter, verses 28 through 32 of chapter 14, we are introduced to this again. I shouldn't say introduced. We're reminded of this covenant to David, and it was in the light of God's people being protected as Philistia is totally destroyed. Here we see that covenant expanding to the world. We see it expanding past God's people. Remember, he's talking to the Moabites we're not done with the Moabites yet, because right in the center of this, God offers them their true need. You want safety? You want justice? You want me to make a decision? Here's what's going to be set up. Set up is this throne 
And the throne is going to be marked by steadfast love and faithfulness and justice and righteousness. That's what's offered to them. So if we're the Moabites, we're a decision-making point here, aren't we? Okay, the Assyrians, they're killing us. We're heading into Judah. We sent him a lamb, but now we get this response. We get this response that it's all going to end and there's going to be a throne? Well, if a throne is presented to you and a king is seated upon that throne and everything that king does is good and righteous and just, what is your response? It is to bow before that king. It is to recognize the glory of the ruler and bow before them. You don't just go and say, save us. You say, I'm your servant. I bow before you and to your power and to your will. But verse 6 tells us that something else has happened. Because someone's calling out the arrogance of the Moabites. Probably the people of Israel. Look at verse 6. We have heard, notice how it's repeated, the pride of Moab. How proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence, and his idle boasting. He is not right. What a contrast between the, the verse before, faithfulness, justice, righteousness, steadfast love, Pride, proud, arrogance, pride, insolence, idle boasting. The works of Moab are not submitted to the grace of God. They're the exact opposite. And we see again the, our, our enemy, pride. All the way through the book of Isaiah, this is what we have seen, haven't we? The pride of the Israelites, the pride of the nations. Pride is lurking behind everything. It's behind the Moabites, and the Moabites are not turning that. They are coming to Judah, to the Zion of the the daughter of Zion, coming to the, the, the seed of the daughter of Zion. They're coming there with all their pride and their arrogance and their insolence, and they're saying, save us. And they're not setting anything aside. And yet before them is the offer of covenant faithfulness from Yahweh. So the people cry out in witness against them, and God then responds to that witness. And he begins in verse 7, responding to that witness through verse 14. The first thing we see is Moab must weep for themselves. Because verse 6 shows that they're refusing the offer. We want your safety, but we don't want you. We want physical security, but we don't want lordship. That's not what we want. Look at verse 7. 7, 9, and 11 all start with therefore, don't they? God has given his promise. This is going to end, and I'm going to sit the righteous one on the throne. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to avoid who that is. We're going to come back to that. But we've already met this righteous one, right? Chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11. We've met full on the messianic hope of the righteous one who will sit on the throne of David. And he says, if you're rejecting that, verse 7, therefore, Moab must weep for themselves. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly shaken for the raisin cakes of Kir Hasheth. What they would have made, the, the, the image of a vineyard permeates the rest of these verses. So they would have take, taken, making out of their dried grapes these raisin cakes to give to their God as an offering. And they're mourning for the day that they can do that. 
For the fields of Hezbon languish and the vine of Sibma, the lords of the nations, have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazir and strayed to the desert. The shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. In all directions you had fame. In all directions you had fruitfulness. And now it's all been overrun. From the north to the south, from east to west, it has been overrun. And you must mourn for yourselves. I have mourned for you and I've offered you an escape and you've rejected it by holding on to your pride. But next, I will weep for Moab even as I judge Moab for their sin. Verse 9, the second therefore. Therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazir. I'm weeping with them for the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears. For over your summer fruit and your harvest, your shout has ceased. And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in the vineyards, no songs are sung. No cheers are raised. No treader treads out wine for the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. All of the attendant joys of the harvest are gone because there is no harvest. And who has done it? Yahweh himself. I have put an end to this. And why is that? Because all those blessings were from him anyway. Even if they worship Chamas in the middle of it, all the blessings are, were for him because he is the sovereign one. He is the only true God. And how have they responded? In pride, pride, insolence, arrogance. And God says, I'm mourning over you and I will weep for you even as I judge you and take these blessings of mine away from you. But he also says, I will mourn for Moab even as I judge Moab for their sin in verse 11. The third one, therefore, the third, therefore, my inner parts moan like a liar for Moab, my most inmost self for Kir Hashath, the, the main city there. Do you see the constant compassion of God? God is not a cosmic killjoy that sits up in the heavens and chooses who he's going to zap with another lightning rod. Even as he acts righteously in judgment, he does it with the full orb of his character who is one who is compassionate. He does not judge without compassion. He does not give compassion without judging. There is no separation in his character. His character is all in himself and he's perfect in all the attributes of his character. And this passage shows us both sides. And for us, we're like, how can I exact judgment on somebody if I'm showing compassion toward them? And we're not able to do that in truth, are we? Because we have sin, and God does not. And he is able to do that because how do we know? Because chapter 16 of Isaiah just demonstrates that for us. Clear as anything. God is not enemies of people in such a way as all the gods of all the other pantheons and fables. He is a God who demonstrates his full character at all times. He also says, Moab will fail to find security in their God after refusing my security. Look at verse 12. And when Moab presents himself, that is when he, when he comes in back into where we started, when he comes into his, the temple of their God, Shamash, he presents himself there. He wearies himself on the high place, wearing himself out, cutting himself, whatever their ritualistic things to do were. When he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. Why? Because he worships a false god. And the true God has given him the only answer that will solve his issue. And yet he goes back to the throne. Why? Because he rejected the offer because of his pride. 
And in three years without fail, Yahweh says, I will bring low Moab's glory. Verse 13. This is the word that Yahweh spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now, now I have no idea with any certainty exactly the timing that we're being given here. I'm just going to confess that to you. There are some people that think we're talking about two battles. He said this in the past, and now he's saying this. One battle under, uh, led by Sargon of the Assyrians in the 715 time, and there'll be another one in 711. Battles documented in history that the, the one he's talking about now that'll happen in three years is the one that'll happen in 711 or 12 or so. Some people think it's all just talking about battles that we do not have any knowledge of. We're not sure which battles. I fall really strongly into that camp because there's not enough to help me know which historical battles are being spoken of. But what I do think is true is if you look back at verse 1, when we see because of Ar of Moab, because of Kir of Moab, I think those are prophetic perfects. So they're prophesying something in the future as if it's happening now. And so I think that whole description that we've just gone through all the way up to verse 12 is something that God is saying is going to happen to the Moabites. When? I I have no idea. Isaiah is not telling us. Isaiah is using it as an object lesson, as an example. Do you see that? So I'm not sure which battle it is, but all of it is talked about in, I think, something that will happen in the future, and it's talked about all through there as if it's already happened or is happening right now. And if that's the case... I say reservedly, if that's the case, when he says he's spoken this way in the past, that this is what's going to happen in the future, he could be talking about the same battle, talking about it in a way as if it's already happened, and now he's saying it's going to happen quickly. Look at what it says. But now Yahweh has spoken, saying, in three years, like the years of a hired worker, we're going to see this phrase again in chapter 21 to use in the same way. I mean, just picture yourself signing on for three years to work for someone. Are you working for three years and two hours? You're not going to, are you? I commit myself for three years. Three years is done. I'm out of here. I'm a hired worker. I've done what you ask. You paid me my dues. I'm not staying longer. That's the picture here. Like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. So what they think is their glory, this is a common theme, right? We're going to see it in the next oracle as well, where uh, the the glory of one country is said it's going to be the same as the glory of Israel, and the glory of Israel is in the dirt. And that's what's happening here. You think you're glorious, But your glory, everything that marks you out as special, even your numbers, your great multitude, there will be the the people that remain, the few that will remain will be very few and feeble. So we see constantly in Isaiah judgment and hope. Some are promised a remnant. Some are not promised a remnant. It doesn't mean there won't be, but they're not promised a remnant. But God is showing in this oracle because he's taking the Davidic promises and offering them to Moab. He's showing us that these Davidic promises reach further. They reach further than just Israel because that's always been God's intent. God's intent has always been to bring the gospel, to bring salvation to the nations. And this is that prime picture of him offering it to the Moabites and what it looks like when we reject that offer. Now, this is what it looks like for anybody to come face to face with the offer of the gospel in Jesus Christ. When someone faithfully tells them, 
You are a sinner. God is holy. He's a holy God. He has every right and will judge you for your sin. And you can't take care of your sin your own in your own way. You can't do that. You have to have someone else take care of that because your righteousness will, will never overtake your sin and present you to God in a way that has you be received by him. So when somebody comes and tells them that this is who you are and this is who God is, but you have this sin and here is the result of sin. The result of sin is your world falls apart and eventually when the compassion of the Lord runs out, you will spend eternity in suffering and judgment because you cannot deal with your own sin before a holy God. Now, if we just stopped there, we'd have the God in heaven throwing lightning bolts with no hope, wouldn't we? But when we present the gospel, we have to make sure people actually understand their sin. They have to make sure we understand who God is. But we also have to present to them to the answer that the scriptures bring. And the answer that the, that the scriptures bring, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one promised in Isaiah, the, the child that is born, the one who comes and sits uh, rightfully on the throne of David. We take all of that teaching of Scripture, we see he's the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, the one who has the right to sit on the throne of David, the one who is not only the one who does the perfect work of the priest, but he is the offering that he offers. And that offering is once for all. It's a once for all offering for sin. Not just one sin, not just two sins, but for the sins of all who will repent and trust in that offering. And when someone hears that and they think, that sounds cool, that sounds really good, and they, they think, well, maybe my problems will be solved, maybe my, li my life will change, well, what do I have to do to get this? Repent, give up your life. Give up the trust in your own works. Give up the trust in, in what you're thinking save yourself. Give up the trust in your own righteousness. Let all that go away. But not just let it go and sit there and look at it, hope you can get it. Let it go, push it aside, turn the other way, and run full on into Jesus and everything that he is. Everything. The things you don't know and the things that you do know. The things that will be hard and difficult. The things that will not be so hard and difficult. That is the calling to pick up your cross daily and follow him. And some people, they just, no, I don't think I can do that. I really like those blessings though. Can I kind of ride on your tail? Can I kind of ride along with you? Maybe I can come into your church. Maybe I can just get some of that. Maybe I, maybe I can just breathe some of that air and get some of that. Because that, that what do you call it? Lordship? Yeah, I don't think I like that lordship idea. I, I don't think I like that. And yet that is who Jesus is. Jesus is the king. It is his kingdom. And if we will be his subjects, we will be bowed to him and not to us. We will be bowed to him and, and not to Satan. We will serve him and not Satan. Moab, in the flow of this story, by the witness of the Israelites, holds on to their pride and arrogance. And God says, destruction will come upon you because you've rejected, if we put it in new covenant terms, you've rejected my son. They've rejected the promise of the Messiah, the Davidic king, the one who will sit on the throne forever. So if that's you today, if you're Moab holding on to your own pride, you need to back up to those verses where Jesus says, where God says, I'll put my son on the throne and he will reign in righteousness and my covenant faithfulness will come to you through him. And you bow before him and repent of your sin, forsake it all and come to Christ today. You don't know what it all looks like and that's okay. Everyone in this room is still learning what that looks like, amen? 
Anybody think they've arrived yet? You got following Jesus down 100%? Please don't put up your hand. Because it's not true, is it? As we are sanctified and we move more toward Christ, he reveals more things. Not only about us, though, but about him as well. And his faithfulness and the glory that he has. This is the time that you come to Christ this morning. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Talk to someone beside you. You may be seven, you may be 17, or 83, or 196, I don't know. But if you're breathing and Christ hasn't come, home, come to get us yet, there's still hope for you. But maybe you've professed Christ and you say, well, what does this have to me? I'm not, I'm not holding on to my pride. Are you sure? Every minute of every day, we're tempted to hold on to our pride. We're tempted to be wounded in ways that we should not worry about. We're tempted to do things out of our own strength because we know best. We're tempted to think that the gospel applies to other people but not to us. We're tempted to read the word and turn the page. Or we might go back to it and say how it affects the other person but not to us. And we're tempted to go on because I want to learn more about Jesus. And Jesus is saying, why don't you apply what I taught you this morning? Why don't you let the grace that I'm providing for you come over you so you can obedient, be obedient to the things that you already know? We come constantly with insincere request before Jesus if we are not endeavoring to follow what we already know. Now, we're not going to do that perfectly. I'm, I'm not holding up the law and, say, and telling you to do it all. Be perfect. At the end of the day, count up all your ducks. See if you've got more in the good side than the bad side. I'm not saying that. I'm saying be humble before the Lord and not arrogant. Bow before him every day and, and let him remind yourself of who he is and who you are so that as you go through your day, the Holy Spirit sanctifies you, conforms you into the image and likeness of Christ. It's not wrong to ask for blessings, but are we asking for even the right blessings? They wanted physical security, right? What were they offered? Real, spiritual, eternal security. And that's what we have been offered. The, the language of the covenant flows throughout that section as well. God's promises, his covenantal language. We are those who are part of the covenant. And that covenant is that when God redeems us, we're obedient to him and he is our God. We worship him as our God. We're constantly laying our life down before him. Our pride is not going to be our downfall if we are being sanctified. We are the ones who are constantly coming and confessing sin. You know that you're, you should be confessing sin every day, right? Every day we sin and we should be confessing before the Lord. And he is faithful and just to, for, to forgive us of that and to remind us that it was forgiven on the cross for those who are his. He reminds us of that daily. How many times are we in our life seeking wisdom, but we're not going to God for wisdom? We're using our own wisdom. The Bible tells us that if we lack wisdom, and can I tell you that means since you do lack wisdom, because we do, you're not as wise today as hopefully you will be tomorrow. The, the gray hair is supposed to mean something. 
right? So if we're lacking wisdom, the Bible tells us to go to him for that wisdom, and he is faithful to give that wisdom in abundance if we believe that he is the God who has wisdom and will grant it to us in abundance. If we don't believe that, if we're not coming by faith, he, pro- he, he doesn't make that promise to us. How many times do we ask for wisdom? How many times do we ask for guidance in something, but we're not listening to the scriptures of what, how God is guiding us? How many times do we seek happiness or satisfaction in something found here on earth, even good and perfect gifts from our Heavenly Father, while at the same time neglecting our relationship with Christ, asking for blessings without pursuing our sanctification? Both of those go hand in hand. The blessings are ours, and when we're not pursuing Christ, we are separated from those blessings because we start worshiping the blessings instead of the one who has blessed us. Well... We could go on and on, but I'm confident, I'm confident because I know me and I know you that we spend much of our life worrying about things that would change if we pursued Christ instead of those things. If we pursued Christ instead of the worry, if we pursued Christ instead of the anger, Christ instead of the pain, Christ instead of the depression, Christ instead of the suffering, Christ instead of the wealth, Christ instead of our job, Christ instead of our family, good things and sinful things. If we're pursuing Christ, then all along the way, the blessings are pointing us to Christ and not toward the blessings. They're pointing us to Christ and not towards the sorrows of this life. He lifts us up when we call from sorrows deep. That's the message of the oracle to Moab for us today as believers. Are we asking for fill in the blank, security for the Moabs? What is it for you? What are you asking for when you're rejecting the gospel in the daily use in your life? I think I'm just going to stop there. Let's pray. Father, Isaiah continues to to challenge us both intellectually and in our hearts, but we are so grateful that you have spoken through a prophet so many years ago to nations that were living and existing so many years ago and you reveal yourself as the same God then as you do today. You've called the nations to come to you, but they come to you because you are God. You are the creator. You are the God who exhibits righteousness, who acts in justice, who is sovereign over all things. You are the God who is not sort of sovereign or kind of sovereign, but you are the sovereign. And so help us, Lord, to bow to your will through the power of the gospel that we might, we might remember the work of Christ and the empowerment of your Holy Spirit and pursue you because we are no longer your enemies. There are times that we suffer in this life, Lord, and it, it is beyond our understanding of why. It might not even be for our own sin. It's for the sin of others. And yet, We know that Christ suffered at the hands of others. He was the perfect one. No sin, no need to die, no need for punishment, and yet he endured it so that we might have life. So help us, Father, to be those people who pursue Christ and not ourselves. 
who have compassion on those who are still your enemies, who are full of love that we have from Christ and love others because he has loved us first, that our lives are being conformed into the image and likeness of your son so that when people look at us, they don't see us, but they see Jesus more clearly. And you've told us, Father, that we're coming out of all of this pain and suffering to follow Christ. And when we do, we still have pain and suffering in this world. And yet you have told us that the end result is to be conformed into the image and likeness of your son and to live with him eternally face to face with no sin. So we ask, Father, today that you draw those to yourself who don't know you, that you encourage and equip your people to better crucify our own sin and to, and to, to follow and to love Christ and that your kingdom would be advanced through our individual lives, our families, and our church in ways that have never been even thought of until we've started exploring your word in Isaiah. Glorify yourself through us by working in us for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.